Good to see you all. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And if you would like last week's announcements or a connection card, I have a bunch up here for you. I'll just put these right here. Well, that's quite the passage. I'm sure after it was read by Rusty, you were wondering, can we skip this one? <laughs> it, again, just seems like a set of instructions that honestly took me three or four reads to even begin to understand uh, the construction of this lampstand. For that reason, I want to reread that passage, but from the most contemporary, dynamic, easy translation available to the English language today, in my opinion, which is the message. And here again, the, the description, so I want us to pay attention to the different materials, the different things that are inside of these instructions, but also to try to imagine what this lampstand would have looked like. Because as we'll see, it's the little tiny details in the lampstand that communicate its function to us. And it's its grand function that communicates something incredible about God. So let's reread this. Well, I will reread it. Unless you have a message, you can follow along. Starting verse 31, make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make it stems and branches, cups and calyxes. On one branch, three on the next, and so on. The same for all six branches. On the main stem of the lampstand, make four cups shaped like almonds with calyx and petals, a calyx extending from under each pair of the six branches, and the entire lampstand fashioned from one piece of hammered pure gold. Make seven lamps for the table. So they can cut. Arrange the lamps so they throw their light out in front. Make the candle snuffers and trays out of pure gold. Use 75-pound brick of pure gold to make the lampstand and its accessories. Study the design you were given on the mountain and make everything accordingly. So that clears everything up, right? It's still really confusing for us. But it wouldn't have been confusing for Moses. Did you notice what was said right there at the very end in verse 40? God speaking to Moses, see that you make them, so the accessories, the utensils, the lampstand, the lamps, you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So Moses has a keener insight into what this ought to look like than we do. What we're looking at are the instructions what Moses saw was a vision of what God desired this lampstand to look like. So we're looking at kind of a summary of that vision. And without any more detail, we could only imagine. Well, fortunately, we have some historical evidence that strongly suggests exactly what the lampstand would have looked like. And it comes from a pretty unlikely place, at least at first, in the center of downtown ancient Rome. There is an arch that's not very far away from the Colosseum that's set atop the Roman Forum on Palatine Hill called Titus's Arch. And this arch commemorates the sacking of Jerusalem by Vespasian and his brother Titus in 81 AD. I'm sorry, the, the temple was constructed in 81 AD. The sack of Rome occurred in 70 AD. One of you history nerds was going to be like, actually. <laughs> 
I'm just kidding. I'm a history nerd. Who am I? Kidding. So what's what's really interesting about this uh, arch is if you walk under it, if you could walk under it, you would look up and you would see a relief of a scenery of the soldiers returning from Jerusalem to Rome and all of the plundered goods that they brought with them. And if you look really closely, you'll notice that they have something that looks like a menorah. Well, of course, we would call it a menorah because that's what it looks like to us, but that is likely a facsimile of the actual lampstand from the second temple that they had brought back with them. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold, the word says. So again, with gold, we're talking about deity, godness, divinity. The passage goes on, the lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. So what we're starting to see, if we're going to construct this or reconstruct it in, in our imagination, is there's got to be one central part to the lampstand, made of pure gold. That is actually the lamp stand. That's the thing the lamps are going to stand on. And remember, hammered gold means integrated, merged together. There's no seams, and there's all these different ornaments on it, cups and calyxes and flowers. The passage then goes on to talk about how there should be extending rods, six of them, that are turned up, three on one side and three on another. And we think that these are bent upwards for a few reasons. One, that's how tree branches kind of work. But two, again, if you go back to Titus's arch, you see that the design is very similar. But notice also that there are seven branches on this lampstand, which in the Bible is a number of perfection. And no wonder if this lampstand is supposed to be communicating something about God, who is perfect, then what number could represent him besides perfection? In verse 33, we're told about cups that are toward the top and they're upward-facing branches and they're holding the flames where the lamps would have actually sat. And all six of these cups would have been adorned with calyxes and flowers. A calyx is a bud, and a flower is a flower, just in case I wasn't clear. <laughs> but there's an important detail here. If we go to the side and we look at it again, we're trying to construct this in our imagination. Um, the flowers are supposed to be in bloom. So there's something about a communication of newness of life or, or life giving. And they're supposed to be made like almond blossoms. So beautiful flowers, and you can see a little bit of that detail when you zoom in really close to this replica of the lampstand, that it's trying to evoke that blossoming almond flower. Now, I have to go on a little side tangent. If you go to this picture of the almond blossoms, the photograph was actually taken near uh, Titus's arch which is pretty ironic. I mean, God's got this divine cosmic sense of humor that, <laughs> yes, he may have taken the lampstand, but I'm still here. Where's the Roman Empire? Right? I don't know. Is anybody like was planting almond trees there? I don't know if that's what they intended, but I just think that's funny. The passage goes on, and I'll read this part, verses 34 through 40. 
The lampstand itself is going to be four cups, like almond blossoms, calyxes and flowers. The calyx on one piece with the other pair and the six branches going out from the lampstand. Calyxes and their branches shall be one piece. The whole thing is going to be made out of pure hammered gold. You're going to have seven lamps. You're going to create accessories, tongs, and trays for them. They're all going to be made out of pure gold. And so the lampstand would have looked something like this, if you add a base to it. Uh, historians think it was about five feet to maybe six feet, so about as tall as I am at its tallest. It was a tree-like golden candelabra fueled by oil to give light to the tabernacle. That is what's being described to us in this text. That's what it is. In short, it's a lampstand. <laughs> but why is it? Like, why is it that God designed the lampstand in this way? Why didn't he just say, hey, if you need light, because it'll be dark, just get some lamps and make sure there's light, right? There has to be a reason behind the symbolism, the meaning behind the design. And there is. Because, in short, what the lampstand is meant to remind Israel of is that God alone is our source of light and our source of life. It's probably really intuitive when you think about the fact that it's designed after a tree and it gives off light. The, the lampstand is designed to evoke this tree, one that buds, one that flowers, so it's alive. It's one that produces almonds, which I think is really interesting because you would think of all the types of trees that there are that could represent Israel, almond trees wouldn't be the first to come to mind. It probably would be the olive tree, wouldn't it? But God has instructed that this lampstand would be designed after or evoked an almond tree. So why? That's a good question to ask. Also, the lampstand would have been the only source of light in the tabernacle. Imagine for a moment the thick darkness in the tabernacle. All of the exterior walls for the tabernacle were layered with linen and thick leather, animal skins. There were no windows in the tabernacle at all. There was only one way in and one way out, and that was through a heavy flap. It would have been dark, even at the middle of day, like very dark, like can't see your hand in front of your face, dark in the tabernacle. But when the lamps were lit in the middle of this thick black darkness, that darkness vanished, and shadows would dance against the wall, and the space was illuminated. At night, technically, the tabernacle would have been the brightest thing in the entire camp of Israel. So let's ask an obvious question. Why did God want such brilliant light from a lampstand that looks like a tree in a place where God dwells? Well, I think there's at least one obvious answer, right? The priests are attending God's house, and if they're doing so in the dark, they'd fumble around, maybe they drop some things, maybe they lose some things, maybe they would get injured. Israel's version of Osho would have to get involved. And so it's just better if we have a light source in there. But there's another reason, and it has to do with the tabernacle as being God's house. 
So what message is sent to the Israelites if the tabernacle is where God dwells, in a sense is a copy of his home, but the lights are always out? What does that tell Israel implicitly? Like, what do you expect, or to whom do you expect to speak to if you walk up to a house and all the lights are off? One of the commentators made a really great observation when he said, in all probability, having the lights on meant then much the same thing that it means now, someone's home. Someone's home. It's such a beautiful observation because it's simple, it's elegant, and it's true. If the lights are on, someone's home. If there's light, the tabernacle, God's home. The light never went out. So long as the tabernacle was up, God was always home. And the more I thought about this, <clears throat> the deeper I appreciated it. Because maybe some of you need to know this about your Father in heaven. Maybe you've come home and the lights were out because they're rarely there, not because they don't want to be gone, but worse, because they do. And you felt abandonment. They left you, or they left the family. There was a final turning off of the lights that you thought would never come. There was a last time you saw their back walking away from the home. As a spouse, you asked, where did it all go wrong? As a kid, you wondered, did they ever love me to begin with? Is it my fault? Or maybe it was death that robbed you of that person who used to be home, and now home feels less like home. You feel alone and unseen. But with this little picture of God's light in a dark place in his house among his people tells us is a constant and a timeless and eternal truth that in a very real sense, you are never alone because God is always home. And this is something that he wanted to make very clear to his people from the outset. I'm always home. And that works the other way, too. Maybe you're the one that left. Maybe you ran away. Maybe you ran away from God. You ran away from home. You ran away from his house, like the prodigal son, to live in a foreign land, looking for meaning in material experience or fleeting relationships. And now you want to go home, but you're not sure what you're going to find. Are the lights going to be turned out when I get there? And the answer is no. Not only does the parable, the prodigal son, tell us that, but so we see it here in this parable of God's home in the tabernacle. What you're going to find there is a holy, gracious Lord who desires his kids to be where he is, in his house, where he can love them. So go home. He's there. Look, the lights are on. That's what Israel's learning. The lights are on. So light in the tabernacle is a constant reminder to Israel that God is at home with them. He's living there among them. But it doesn't fully answer our question here. It only begins to answer the question. Why did God want such brilliant light from a lampstand that looked like a tree? 
in the place where he dwelt. He, he could have chosen any kind of source of light to communicate that he's at home, but he chose this lampstand that looks like a tree. So let's focus on the meaning of the lampstand as a tree of light. What kind of tree and why? We've already seen it's a tree. It buds, it flowers, it produces almonds. So we think the answer is relatively simple. It's an almond tree. But why an almond tree? Biblical scholars, like frankly, are all over the place on this, which means it's either super mysterious and complicated to explain or so simple that we're just blowing past it, right? <laughs> It's the things I've learned about commentators. Sometimes, frankly, they just feel like they need to say something new. But very often, when you say something new in Christianity, it's called heresy. <laughs> We've got some really good classic tracks. Just replay them over and over and over again, right? But scholars all over this place, they're all over the place on, on interpretation here. One, one scholar argued, you know what? Fruit doesn't matter. It's the tree that's important. So we're meant to look at this as, a, as producing life through light. And I read it, I was like, yeah, duh. <laughs> Tell me something more, <laughs> right? Like that is the most obvious and most apparent thing that we're getting here. But there's still details that you can't just walk away from. Another commentator argued that, well, maybe the tree was mixed. It was kind of like a Frankenstein tree. It was olive and almond and some other kind of tree. And so it was a strange tree that self-fuels because of the olive oil that would have been used to light the lamp. And that's what gives life. I thought it was a really interesting take. The preeps perhaps used olive oil to produce the light, which means that the lampstand as an olive tree would have been self-producing. You see, the commentator's trying to say that the olive tree creates the olives, which then provides the material for the oil, which then lights the tree. And so this commentator is arguing what this is trying to show us is I am that I am. I'm independent. I'm infinite. I produce my own energy. I am my own source, right? And so this is a parable of God. And that's cool to think about, but there's two problems with that. First, where are we getting the olive tree and the olive oil from? I'm not saying they couldn't, uh, but it literally says almond in the text. So let's not venture too far away from that word. And the only other wood we've seen so far after Egypt has been acacia wood, the incorruptible wood. And we've not seen anything about olive trees yet. So why are we assuming that? And then second, and probably more problematic, if the lampstand is representing like who God is, then what's he doing outside of the Holy of Holies, right? Remember, the construction of the tabernacle has essentially three spaces. In its innermost part is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat are. Then there's the Holy Place, and then there's the outside. And the Holy Place is where the lampstand is, which means if the lampstand is supposed to be representative of who God is in his being, less so what God does, then we have a problem because he's outside of the Holy of Holies. Why have the Holy of Holies in the first place then? I think another argument that was interesting is that this represents the tree of life. Think like Eden, that kind of makes sense. It's within a garden or a holy place. 
walled off or gardened, hedged off from the rest of the world. And it was tended to by priests, the lampstand was, which you could say Adam acted like a priest because he was put in the garden to tend and to keep it. But the problem is, well, where is the tree of life in Eden? It's separated from us by cherubim. Remember, at the fall, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, and God put cherubim with a flaming sword to prevent us from returning to the tree of life. But in the tabernacle, where is the space that is separated by cherubim? It's the Holy of Holies again. So if this is supposed to be the tree of life, and again, it's in the wrong place. It's too close to sinners. Otherwise, the imagery here is saying you can have access to the tree of life without access to God. You can walk straight up to the tree of life without going through the propitiation and the mediation of the mercy seat. And that defeats the whole point of the function of the tabernacle, I believe. Also, I hate to be rep uh, repetitive here, but where are the almonds? Again, it says almonds like four or five times in this text. We have to do something with these almonds. I'm obsessed with the almonds. Perhaps the most unimaginative interpretation of this is that the lampstand is an unimpressive and a common cultic item that represents the divine power, quote, that provides the fertility of plant life. That is so boring. And again, <laughs> almonds. If fertility is what you're after, why almonds? There's a lot of other trees that produce fruit. I think the only thing you could say is almonds, I think, were one of the first trees to like blossom its fruit in the ancient world. But here's my counterpoint to that. Israel is about to be given an entire multi-day festival celebrating God's provision of bringing them fruit called First Fruits. So they're not going to need the lampstand to remind them of that. Also, almonds. I think the challenge to interpreting this text is that we fixate on trees that produce rather than fixating on this specific tree that produces and what it is producing. It is an almond tree that produces light. And if that's weird, it should be. That's the point. Its fruit is light. Almond trees, if you don't know this, don't produce light. I triple check that. They produce almonds. I quadruple check that. I know it sounds obvious, but I think this is the point here. God wants us to wonder every time the priest stepped into the tabernacle, why does a golden almond tree produce light? It's weird. It's supposed to be. So let's answer that question. Why does a golden almond tree produce light? Well, let's start with golden. By now, we're very familiar with what this means. In the tabernacle, gold is meant to evoke God. It's meant to communicate something about God's nature, his person, his work, his deity. So this lampstand itself is communicating something about God. You're supposed to, it's snapping its fingers and saying, hey, God's like this. But why does a golden almond tree? So 
what's with the almond tree? To cut to the chase, I believe we'd never be able to answer this question without at least a little bit of understanding of Hebrew. Because in Hebrew, the word for almond, shekhed, sounds very similar to the word for to watch, shekhad. In Hebrew, then, it's possible to make a word play on almonds and watchfulness. You can make those two words dance. And we're not stretching or pushing the text too much here because God himself does this in Jeremiah. When he says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see in this vision Jeremiah is having? And Jeremiah said, I see an almond shakade branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am shakad watching over my word to perform it. So even God himself is playing with these two words to communicate something about who he is, what he's like, what he's doing. The almond branch watching over providence. So what do you imagine was brought to Jeremiah's mind in that moment? He'd be very familiar with the lampstand by this point in Israel's history, especially as a prophet. In this moment of divine illumination where God's associating almonds and, and watching. This is important because God says he's watching over something specific. He says, I'm watching over my word to perform it. Put a pin in that. We got to come back to it later because that's really important. So the fact that the lampstand is a golden almond tree has something to do with God, gold, and his providence or his sovereignty or his ability to bring things about watching over. Okay, last part here. Then why is this golden almond tree producing light? I, I, I think it evokes creation, but not the tree part. I think the light part is what evokes creation for us. Because by God's word, he creates light, Genesis 1-3. God separates light from darkness, Genesis 1-4. What does it mean to separate? He sanctifies. He makes holy the light from that which is without form and void. So he wants there to be a clear distinction here. And wouldn't this also have reminded Israel about their time in Egypt? Because in the ninth plague, what happened in Egypt? There was a thick darkness over the entire land that you, was palpable that you could even feel, with one exception. Where was that? In Goshen, where the Israelites were. You can find that in Exodus chapter 10. Israel had light in their dwelling, the text says. And the tabernacle is God bringing light to Israel as he dwells with them. So you are meant to look at this and see light produced by God separates, it makes holy, and light produced by God favors, it loves, it envelops, it surrounds. So each time the priests saw this light-producing tree, that's what they should have been reminded of. God alone produces light, the kind of light that separates, that makes holy, and the kind of light that he showers over his people, this love. And this gets to the question of the lampstand that we're asking here. If God is likened to a tree wrapped in this majesty of gold and deeply rooted in his promises and branching out into perfection, then what is the fruit that God produces? It is light. I'm so glad no one said almonds. 
the fruit that God produces is light. Look again at the lampstand. Let's just look at it for a second. Now with everything we've talked about so far. What if this is true? What if the fruit that God produces is light? That is certainly something that John saw in his vision of heaven, wasn't it? We read it. In Revelation 22.5, John said, The night will be no more, looking forward to the future after Christ's return. There will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They, being the saints, will reign forever and ever. See, God can't help but illuminate. He can't help but push back darkness. He can't help but break forth in brilliance. And darkness can do nothing but retreat from light. It does not have an option at all. Jack is fond of pointing out the obvious, that where light is, darkness recedes. In one of, I don't know if he got it from some, somewhere, or this is just like Jack's like thing. But he has this joke about like, when you go camping, you don't take, a, you don't take flash darks, we take flashlights, right? There's no way you can like turn something on to like, sh I was about to say shine darkness on it, but you can't, see, it's, it's absurd, it, it doesn't even work. And like an apple tree, can't help but produce apples, because by its nature, it is an apple tree, God can't help but produce light. Because by his nature, he is light. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one else has ever seen or can see. This is Paul's way of describing that. God doesn't dwell in unapproachable light because he has great light sources. He dwells in unapproachable light because he is a source of light. And I sincerely believe that this is the lesson that Israel was supposed to be taught day in and day out, that while the other gods need your light, I don't. I am light. So what does that light mean? What does it represent? What does it mean for Israel? What does it mean for us? You know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about God's divine nature, about how he is equally holy and equally loved, two divine attributes that are repeated all throughout the Bible. Saw so how John says, for example, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, which means that all loves flow out from the heart of God. He's always been love. He's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved one another in eternity past, will so for eternity future, and outside of the Trinity, God brought us into being and sustains us and redeems us by that love. We also saw how God is described as holy in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's the only thing that God has described thrice fold in all scripture. God is, by his very nature, set apart from what he creates. So he is utterly blessed and glorified over all things because all things owe their existence to him. He is holy. These divine attributes, holiness and love, pierce through the darkness of sin and hate. Look again at that lampstand. Imagine peeling back the, the entrance curtain to the tabernacle. 
and you can see it on the outside. You recognize just how thick the linen and how thick the leather is that is covering it. And what you would expect is this overwhelming, claustrophobic, can't even see in front of your face darkness. But instead, what you see is flickering light, holiness, love, absolutely dominating the darkness. Now, because God emanates this light, God emanates holiness and love. He cannot help but do so. It is in his nature. Well, when it comes to holiness, we have a problem, don't we? In one sense, the lamp is a warning. So much as it is an invitation. Look out, God's holy presence is, is just ahead, is what it's saying. Why? Because sinners cannot approach holiness. Only holiness equal to God's infinite and independent holiness can approach him. In other words, only God can approach God. And another problem, God promised to dwell with Israel. He promises so to dwell with us. So how will he do so as a God who emanates holiness? For Israel, you begin to see the solution in a high priest in the sacrificial system and everything we talked about with the ark and the mercy seat. And for all God's people, us included, that is culminated and fulfilled in Jesus, the great high priest who self-sacrificed on our behalf. Only one who is perfectly holy can approach holy perfection. No one in this room qualifies to that definition. Only Jesus is the perfectly holy one. He who knew no sin, committed no sin, was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, a lamb without blemish or spot, says the New Testament. But do you know what else Jesus is? He's the Word of God. What did God say he watches over to bring about his purposes in Jeremiah or to Jeremiah? How does he say he watches over us? By the power of his words. The only way any of the promises that God has made to us come to us is through his word. The promises he makes in the incarnation of his promises, Jesus, in whom all God's promises find their yes in. John goes on in, in, in his opening of the gospel to say, in him, Christ, was life and the life was the light of men. You see, in him we have life because Jesus is the very light of God. We can't approach God's holy light. Its brightness would destroy us in sin. But in Christ, tucked by faith in him, like animals on the ark, we can approach God, the very light of God, because we are doing so by the merits and permission of Christ alone. No wonder Peter describes us in the way that I like to remind us of our identity. As a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of what? Darkness into what? Marvelous light. What's marvelous light? God's holiness. But why? 
Why does Jesus do this for us? Well, the answer is that second attribute that's constantly pulsating and emanating like light from a candle. God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. When the light of God stepped into the darkness of this world, a gift was given by love, and the world was given a choice. You can either embrace, you can either be embraced by light's love, or you could continue to love the darkness forever. This is made very clear in Jesus' teaching here. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friend, take this gift of light. God is giving it to you freely because of his love. And that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the heaven, or coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And when you do, the gifts that you receive from this light keep coming and coming, and the more you receive, the more you realize why it is that you were called out of darkness in the first place, to be loved by love, forever in the presence of his holiness. I believe all of this is wrapped up in the simple flicker of a strange-looking lampstand in a tabernacle thousands of years ago. God was getting Israel's heart ready to see the truer and greater lampstand in his son. Well, until then... As a royal priesthood in a holy nation in a dark land, what are we to do? Like, what are we to make of this? Jesus describes the church like this. He says, you are the light of the world. Or sorry, you are, yes, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's impossible at nighttime not to see cities that were on hills. Has anybody ever been to any part of the old world? Yeah, Europe, the Middle East, and they have these little tiny villages that dot the landscape. <clears throat> and at nighttime, especially in hilly areas where there's valleys and dales, at nighttime you see all of these flickering lights from across all these tiny little villages. And it was the, it, it was the villages that situated themselves on top of these hills that typically came later in history or were making a bold proclamation that they weren't afraid of invasion. All of the oldest cities, at least in Europe, are like in the valleys. And then over time, they kind of ran out of space and then people get angry with each other. I, I lived in a village that had like 300 people and it had a twin village that was like a kilometer away down a road in a valley that had like 400 people and you would have thought that at any moment they would go to war with each other like they hated each other so much to a point where I would commute back from work my neighbor asked me like do you go through Labash and I'm like what he's like do you drive through Labash I'm like 
I do. Why? It's like, well, it saves me 15 minutes to get here. He said, what does it smell like? I was like, what? I was like, it does kind of smell like cows now that you mention it. But, but anyway, the point was, at, an invading army looking across this distance at night can see the light of the cities. So either you were unfortunate because you ran out of room in the valley, or you were trying to make a point. We're not afraid of the invading army. We're here. For hundreds of miles, you can see us. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. We are that city light of the world. And like the lampstand that can't help but produce light as its fruit, like God who can't help but produce holiness and love, we're supposed to have a new nature. We're supposed to be peculiar new trees that produce new fruit, the same fruit that God produces, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A bright light that pierces into the darkness of this fallen world, and God ensures this in us through sanctification as he watches over that process by the power of his Spirit through his gracious providence. And we grow and produce fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Do you want to be light to this world? Do you want to emanate or produce the fruit of life so that people would be drawn to the holiness and to the love of God? This is what that light fruit looks like. Emanate it. Emanate this fruit. In darkness there is hate. But in light, there is love. In darkness, there is hate. There's raised fists, violent protests, shatters families and friendships. But in light, there is love. Refuse to succumb to the anger shared by our culture. Let love guide your heart. In darkness, there's sorrow. We see it all around us. There is anxiety. There is doom scrolling on smartphones. There's lamenting about our culture and economy. But in light, there's joy. Remember that Jesus is your victor. You belong to a greater and a permanent kingdom. In darkness, there's conflict. There's wars occurring right now. There's violence domestically. There are social tensions. But in light, there's peace. So rest easy in the easy yoke and light burden of Christ. In darkness, there is intolerance. There is feigned concern for the oppressed by elites. There are double standards in our political sphere. There is a cultural immaturity that devastates our ability to have a discourse as a culture. But in light, there's patience, something our society has completely run out of. Trust the Lord. Be still and quiet. Listen. Earn the opportunity to be heard. Stick with it for the long term. That's what Jesus is doing with you every single day. Can you do it for your neighbor? In darkness, there is animosity. Anybody seen any animosity recently? There is slander, insults, what I think is actually worse, indifferent dismissals. Essentially, most of the arguments you see on social media. But in light, there's kindness. And there is, I will warn us as a, as a church, there is this weird 
fundamentalist drift towards seeing kindness as weakness. God forbid it. God forbid it. To be kind does not mean to be naive. You can be kind and truthful at the same time. And it's just, it, it, it irks me. You can be nice without being naive. You can be caring without compromising. That's the Christian way. You don't want to do it because it's hard. Exactly. Okay, anyway, in darkness, there's immorality. And the list is nearly endless. One of the most egregious in our society today, I think, and it was just shown on, uh, in, in our media just this last week, that we would even entertain abortion just moments before birth. We used to call that infanticide in a contest of political power, not goodwill. That's, that's what our culture is used to, is immorality. That's the norm. But in light, there is goodness. You want to be peculiar and weird like an almond tree that produces light? Look to the Scripture, define goodness from Scripture, and then act in that by the Holy Spirit. In darkness, there is infidelity. In our relationships, and organizations, and marriages, and friendships, but in light there is faithfulness, a commitment to stick it out, to see it through, just like Jesus has committed to us. In darkness there is harshness, as if the person you're speaking to or typing at isn't an image bearer of God. But in light there is gentleness, and in a world of chaos and callousness, where that's the norm, Shouldn't we as a church be a breath of fresh air in the quiet and gentle spirit that should be present here? In darkness, there is unconstraint, unhinged, unmoored, unrestricted sin, but in light, there is self-control, and that kind of self-control that is empowered by grace for the glory of God and holy living in him. Revelation 1 describes churches as lampstands. Not that we are gods, but that we're gods. Does that make sense? Not that we are in our being gods, but that we are gods and that we belong to him. We are his lampstands. He uses us to bear the fruit of light to a darkened world to emanate his holy love to a fallen world. Let us be a church that shines brightly as God's illuminated people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, that even as a text that seems so obscure and distant is filled with such radical truth, a lesson about your proximity and your nearness to us as your holiness and love emanate in darkness. Father, we confess that as individuals and as your church, we fall short in being your lampstands. But we recognize that in confession and repentance, you are great high priest are ready to illuminate us so that as a city on a hill, people lost in darkness might find their way to you. Not to us, not to this church, but to you. 
So, Father, we pray that we would be your lampstands of holiness and love and that all people would be drawn to you through our lives that you are sanctifying by your Spirit. Father, we love you. We love your word. We thank you. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Church, would you?